You can take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll be focusing on verse 10. Let's go to the Lord together and ask Him to bless our time in the Word. Let's pray. Our Father, Your Word is powerful. It's like a sword, and it could pierce our hearts and discern our thoughts. You've said in Your Word that there is nothing that's hidden from Your sight. All things are naked and open to Your eyes. There's no motive that we could hide from You, no secret sorrow, no private sin. You see it all. You know our wills. I pray that You would use Your Word through Your Spirit to change us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The past few weeks, we've been looking at this series on the Lord's Prayer. And it's been my desire and hope that as we are unfolding this passage, that our prayer lives would be deepened. Like I really have been praying, I was reflecting on this uh, earlier this week, I, I really hope that it's actually changing something in us. I don't want this just to be something that you hear on Sunday mornings and then go and forget about, but I, I genuinely want, I've been praying that this would transform our prayer lives because prayer is communication with God, right? This is why God has created us. I mean, God made you and me to thrive in a relationship with Him. Our lives don't make sense any other way than without God. As I've said before, we are like scattered pieces of a puzzle that make no sense apart from a relationship with God. And to have a relationship, you have to have what? Communication. And prayer is communication between our souls and the soul of God, the, the God Himself. That's why prayer is central to our relationship with God. That's why prayer is central to the purpose for which we have been created. And that's why we said at the beginning of the series that if you and I can learn to pray well, if we can learn to take our sorrows and our sins and, and pour them out before the throne of grace, if we could do that on a daily basis, we can live well. I was talking with Pastor Kyle about this series a little bit earlier this week, and he made the comment that, that while prayer should start in the closet, it doesn't stay in the closet, right? What goes on in the closet between you and the Lord, I mean, it should be something that's personal. It should be something that you do not because you want other people to see. But on the other hand, your walk with the Lord in the closet should just spill out of your life, right? I mean, this is what I'm aiming for in this series, that our prayer lives and our walk with the Lord would just be deepened and transformed through this series. Is that happening with you? Think about that. Is, is anything changing? I hope it is. I pray it is. I pray that the Lord is using His Word to strengthen us in our walk with, with Him. And so this morning, we are going to be focusing on the third petition, which is actually brings us to the end of the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Because as we've been saying... This prayer has a twofold structure. The first structure has God-oriented petitions. The first 
part of the prayer has God-oriented petitions, and the second part of the prayer has us-oriented petitions. Not that we can separate the two. The reason why we ask for our daily bread, and the reason why we ask for forgiveness of sins, and the reason why we ask deliver us not into temptation is so that we can hallow God's name, so that we can further His kingdom, so that we can do His will. That's the purpose of these requests. Now we come to this one, your will be done. Your will be done. Now, when I asked you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, I did want you to turn there, but I also wanted to do something else. And that is, I wanted to exercise my will, communicate my will to you, and then you responded. Okay, it was just a simple thing that happened, and you didn't even think about it, but really, if you start to probe, you, you, this is really quite amazing. I told you something that I wanted you to do. My will was for you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, right? And you responded. It was a communication from my will to your will. Pretty easy thing to do, right? I didn't ask a whole lot. It would only occupy a small segment of your life, right? I mean, just a small, I mean, you look at the whole pie of your life, like asking you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 is just like a little slice in that pie, okay? But what about when, when the exercise of someone's will asks a little more for you? Like maybe some of you children or, or teenagers, go spend Saturday morning and clean your room. Okay, now, there may be the, the exercise or the communication of your parents' will toward you, and that just occupied a little more of the slice of the, of the pie of your life. Or what about this? You need to go serve on jury duty. Okay, now there's a, a little more of, of, of that, that pie of your life that's being asked to, to, to do. Or what about this? Go spend a weekend in employee training. I mean, that, there, there's a little bit more, okay? So, so increasingly, as, as the will of the government or, or your parents or, or your, your boss, as it, as it occupies more of your life, I mean, that, that's a little, it's a little more significant. It's, it's a little more difficult to do. But when we think about the commands that God gives, when God exercises His will to us, what do we hear? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And all your might. And all your mind. I mean, when God says, here's what you need to do, here's my will to you, it doesn't occupy just a small part of the pie. It's the whole thing. It's not just 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. It's 24-7, 365. I mean, when God gives His will to human beings, it's not just a part of our lives, it's all of our lives, right? That's God's will to us. And so we have to think about this when we're praying, your will be done. I mean, really, what are we asking for? God's will involves all of you all the time, which leads me to ask a very personal question. What is your stance toward the will of God? What is, what's your, think about this for yourself, what is your attitude when you think about God's will? And why am I asking this as a personal question? Well, part of the reason is that these petitions are getting a little more personal. If you think about the sequence of these first three petitions, they're, they're getting 
narrower and narrower and more and more personal. Think about it. Back to when we've addressed the first petition. Hallowed be your name. I mean, may your name be honored as holy. This is the grand motivating impulse of God to exalt His name in all the earth. I mean, that's a, a grand, big, broad petition. But then, how is God's name going to be exalted as holy? It's going to be exalted as holy when He reigns as King. But how does God reign as king? He reigns as king when his will is done. You see the sequence here? Big, grand scope of things. Hallowed be your name. Narrower your kingdom come. That's how his name is hallowed. And then even narrower right down into the hearts of his subjects. Your will be done. That's how God exercises his kingship. That's why I ask you a personal question. What's your attitude toward the will of God? And I really want you to think about it. Perhaps you would say, if I really thought about it, and, and let, let's, please, don't, don't just give Sunday school answers to these sort of things. I love God's will. I want to do God's will. No, I want to know, I want you to think about what is your attitude right now toward the will of God. And maybe if you're just to give a, a raw, unfiltered kind of answer, it'd be this. I hate God's will. It just, it just brings memories of, of when I was a child or teenager, someone just saying, looking in my eyes and saying, obey me, and just that, that feeling of just disgust and rebellion just, just surging up within me. And, and to think that there is a being that has complete claim on my life, it just is hateful to me. And if that's the way you feel, you're certainly not alone. Consider the testimony of the great reformer Martin Luther before his conversion. He said this, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love. I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Perhaps you'd say, I don't think it's hatred toward the will of God, but sometimes my attitude is one of despair. It feels like God asks so much of me. Or maybe this morning you'd say, I don't think it's hatred or despair, but maybe it would be this. Maybe when we think about the will of God, what God wants you to do, what's God's will for your life, maybe you feel like this. I kind of feel scared. Maybe it's fear. Maybe you're thinking this way, man, if I tell God that that I'll do His will, then I know what God, say you're a young person, I know what God's going to do. The the very next thing that's going to happen is God's going to say, I want you to go to Africa and serve as a missionary, all right? That's the very next, as soon as I submit my will to God, God is going to send me to the place that I'm most afraid of going. Or as soon as I submit to God's will, God is going to ask me to go to a place that gets really cold in the winters and snows a lot or something like that. Like as soon as I submit myself to God's will, maybe you're a young person or a single person, as soon as I submit myself to God's will, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, you need to marry somebody that's really boring or really ugly or, or just, and that would be God's will for your life. Or, or maybe it is that, that whenever you think about God's will, the way you think is this. God is going to ask me to do something incredibly unpleasant. And I'm kind of scared of that. Is that you? What is your attitude toward the will of God? 
I think we need to confront this question because we cannot authentically and sincerely pray your will be done if we are holding out in our own hearts any idea that God is, God's will is something to be afraid of or something to despair about or something to hate, in fact. You cannot, you and I cannot sincerely pray this prayer if we're saying I hate God's will or I'm despairing about God's will or I'm afraid of God's will. Do you really understand what you're asking for when you're praying your will be done? And so if we're going to pray this prayer authentically, we need to confront some of this hatred, fear, and despair. We just need to, in your own heart, just drag it out, like pull it, pull it right out there. What, what really is your attitude toward the will of God? And what I hope you to see throughout this message, I'm going to put it out here right at the outset. I, I want you to see as we study what it means to pray, your will be done. I want you to see that, that God's will is not something to, to fear. It's not something to hate. It's not something to feel despair over. It's something ultimately that should be delighted in. Just like what Pastor Kyle was, was reading this morning is in Psalm 40, I delight to do your will. And I believe that if, if, if every person in this room understood really what the will of God is, our response would not be hatred, fear, or despair. Our response would be, Delight! I, I want to do the will of God. But I also hope to show you that there's, there's a deep problem with our hearts when it comes to the will of God. And that is that our wills are broken. We cannot do God's will, and so we need somebody who can. Someone else had to do it. That is, someone else had to do God's will for you. And so this message just takes two steps, okay? I tried to think of a third point because I know every good sermon is supposed to have three points, right? But I couldn't, so it's just going to be two, all right? And, and the, the two steps in, in taking you there is, first of all, first of all we're going to look at three truths about God's will and ours, okay? That's the first step in this sermon. And the second step is this, then what it means to pray, your will be done. Okay, real simply here, three truths about God's will and ours, and then, secondly, what it means to pray, your will be done. Now, these truths to you maybe seem so obvious they almost aren't worth saying, but I think as I state them and then explain their significance, you'll understand why I'm making a big deal out of these, all right? And, and the first truth, again, we're looking at three truths about God's will and ours, and then we're going to look at what it means to pray, your will be done. The first truth is that God has a will. Okay, it seems really obvious, just lying right on the surface. Okay, there it is. God has a will, but let me tell you why that's so important to understand. A lot of people don't believe that God has a will. You know, it's kind of like this, as... As, the, as we live in a more pluralistic culture and other philosophies and religions kind of slosh over onto the Western world, we, it's easy for us to kind of pick up on this, this pantheistic view of God, that God is some sort of non-personal being and, and is, He doesn't really have a will. It, it's kind of like God maybe is, and you read this in, in a lot of even Western literature, God is somehow the balance between chaos and order, the yin and the yang, darkness and light. God is some sort of impersonal force without a will, but this is not our God at all. God has a person that he is a God of personality. He has a will. There are certain 
things that God desires to come to pass. For instance, God willed to create the universe. He willed there to be stars in the sky, to be a sun and a moon to give light. He willed there to be these constellations that we can see and study. He willed there to be this earth that we live on. He willed perfectly and precisely the exact hue of every rose in every garden, the precise tilt of the earth's axis. All this is the result of God's precise and specific will. God indeed has a will. He's not some impersonal force. This is a verse that we quoted last week. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay His hand or even say to Him, What have you done? That's the will of God. He does His will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says this, God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Revelation chapter, 4, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 says this about the will of God. Listen to this carefully. This is this heavenly host that's praising God, and they're saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is He worthy to receive glory and honor and power? For you created all things, and here's another reason why He's worthy to receive glory and honor and power, and by your will they existed and were created. It is by the ongoing exercise of God's will that you and I have breath in our lungs today. It's by the ongoing exercise of God's will that our heart is beating within our chest today. It's by the ongoing exercise of God's will that anything is held together right now. It's because of the will of God. God has a will. And God willed by speaking into existence the universe. But consider what else God willed. God willed, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the rest of the creatures. Remember that? And God also willed that they not eat the fruit of a certain tree. That was God's will. And as I say that, you quickly realize there's something different going on with this aspect of God's will and the aspect of God's will that we just discussed in which God speaks the universe into existence, in which He wills these things to be sustained by the exercise of His own will. Because whereas the, the seas and the galaxies and everything in the universe responds instantaneously to the will of God, there is one creature that resists Him. And that creature is man. And that brings us to the second truth about God will, God's will in ours. The first truth is what? God has a will. The second truth is this. We have a will. We have a will. Those of you who have been parents of young children, have it, has it ever occurred to you that your child has a will? I mean, is it just a little something that you noticed early on, that somehow this kid has a very powerful wanter, and he or she knows how to communicate his will really well. Oh yeah, we are born with a will. I mean, this is precisely what, what the people, uh, Adam and Eve, the very first people in the Garden of Eden were exercising when they actually reached out and took the fruit that God says, it's my will that you don't take that. What was it? It was an exercise of, of will, the very fact that Adam and Eve could take something that God had willed. That is, of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of just this one tree you shall not eat. The very fact that they disobeyed that says what? Humans have a will. It means we can say, God can say, do this, and we can say, 
No. Or God can say, don't do this, and we can say, I will. Now, I just told you the first truths are God has a will, and we have a will. And if you're kind of a, have a theological bent and you're thinking about where I'm going here, you may think, uh-oh, Pastor Thruffle, you're getting yourself into some trouble because we've got all sorts of debates and controversies about the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. And I just want to say on the outset, we're not going to go there this morning, okay? I mean, there, there's a, we're going down a path right here, and there's this really interesting trail that's going off this way, and I'm just for now, I'm going to put a, a sign over and it says, we're not going there this Sunday, okay? There may be another Sunday we could go there, but that's not the point of this message. However, let me just say this for those of you who may be wondering. There is no genuine conflict between the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. To be biblical, we must affirm both. That God, yes, is sovereign overall, and yet human beings have a responsibility to choose. I like to think of, of God's self-revelation as an ocean in this regard. There are some parts of this ocean that are shallow enough for a child to play in. Like this, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, I could grasp that as a child, and I did. God's self-revelation is like an ocean. Some places are shallow enough for a child to play, but there are some places that are deep enough to sink the Titanic. And that's why Paul said this in, in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. So however all this works out, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty is something we're not going to untangle, but I just want to get this sign over that pathway that may divert us and just say we're not going there this Sunday. Here's where we are going. Here's what we are stating, is that when it comes to praying, your will be done, we must understand God does have a will, and we have a will. And here's the third point. Actually, before I get there, let me just say, ask this question. What is the nature of our will? What is our will like? We look at the will of God. What was the will of God like? It's good. After He created everything, what did He say? He said, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And after He was done creating everything, what did He say about everything? God looked at everything He had made, and He said, that's very good. God's will is good. What's our will like? Well, think about what people say about the will of human beings. Some people say this, our will is pretty good, but it's just been damaged pretty bad. I mean, our, our will is, is, it's obviously in bad shape, but given the right circumstances and given the proper amount of effort, we, we can really will ourselves to, to, to be what we should be before God. That's what a lot of people believe, right? That, that our will is damaged, but it's, it's fixable. This, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, is, was, and continues to be the persuasion of the Roman Catholic Church. And many of you come from a background, a Roman Catholic background. Perhaps some of you here today will sit, still subscribe to some of the, the beliefs of a Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. But their belief about the human will is that it is, it's just been damaged. That's why we referred to Martin Luther earlier. He realized through his reading of Scripture that man is in bondage to sin. 
He wrote this, Let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit. Which is just another way of saying this, that while we were dead in trespasses and sins, dead in trespasses and sins, no ability to will ourselves to God, God made us alive in Christ. What's the state of our will? It's not just damaged, it's destroyed. Our wills are in bondage to sin. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have the monopoly on this belief about the human will. Others believe it as well. We find this seeping into secular philosophies. Consider this, the 1973 Humanist Manifesto. This is what they write. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. We see this also, this idea that the human will is just damaged or it's, it's been uh, clouded over with the improper conditions. We see this in popular so- sayings and songs and cliches like there's a spark of goodness in each person or we're just like flowers that need to bloom. But this is not the teaching of Scripture. The whole storyline of Scripture teaches us. It's one massive proof that humans' will, our will is in bondage to sin. Now, when I say that, it's easy to hear a caricature or a cartoon version of that statement, as if everybody is doing everything they possibly can do to sin. But that's not what this is saying. In fact, people without Christ are capable of doing some really amazingly good things. I mean, when it comes to our our horizontal relationships, there, there is a good chance there are many people outside this building and even outside Christianity that, that are much kinder than you are, a little more polite than you are, a little more gentler than you are, maybe even a little more giving than you are. That's true. But what the Scripture is teaching is with respect to our relationship with God, I mean, with respect to our horizontal relationships, it's one thing, but our vertical relationship Our wills are broken. We cannot please God. This is what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 8 when he said that those who are in the flesh, they they, they are hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Three truths about God's will and ours. God, God has a will. It's good. We have a will. It's in bondage to sin. And I told you I'm going to, these are kind of obvious statements, okay? So the third one is going to be really obvious too. These two wills are in conflict, okay? Nothing groundbreaking there, just a really simple truth about God's will, our will, and the fact that these wills are in conflict. And this all goes back to the Garden of Eden, all right? This all goes back to the very beginning when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to take the fruit that was forbidden. And, and what the first Adam did was this, what the first man, he, what he said was this, not your will, but mine be done. Not your will, but mine. And the reason why human beings oppose God's will is because we have strangled ourselves with this lie about God's will. Here's the lie, that God's will isn't good for me. Isn't that the the 
doubt that the devil placed into the minds of the first humans when he tempted them to sin? I mean, isn't what he said, has, he, has God really said this? Doesn't God know that in the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to become like gods, knowing good and evil? You're going to become really who you're meant to be if you step outside the boundaries of God's will. You're going to be really fulfilled as a human being if you step outside of what God wants you to do and take this fruit. And therefore, this doubt was put into the minds of Adam and Eve that God maybe is hiding something from me. There's something really good that I need to get, I need to be, I can become without the will of God. And so maybe God's will isn't good for me. And this lie has crept its way into every single human heart down down the history of human beings making us all believe that God's will is something to be resisted and something to be rebelled against because God's will isn't good for me. All humans except one. Because Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, He came to do the will of God. And in another garden comes the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he also confronted the will of God. But see how different he responded. And I want you to see it by turning to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. I told you that the chorus that every human being has chanted since the time that Adam and Eve sinned against God has been not your will but mine be done. And now Jesus, look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. He says to His three disciples that have followed Him to this distance into the garden of Gethsemane, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. Going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Up to this point, there was never another human being that was able to say honestly and truly, I delight to do your will, and I have come to do your will. If there is anyone in the universe that should be tempted to think God's will isn't good for me, it would be Jesus Christ, who was just on the very eve of His being arrested to be crucified for sins He didn't do. And yet, that very night, in that garden of Gethsemane, He kneels down and He prays to God, He sings a different tune than the rest of human beings have sung up to this point. Instead of saying, not your will, but mine be done, our Lord Jesus Christ prayed this, not my will, but yours be done. You see, our wills are so broken. Our wills are so corrupt, so in bondage to sin, that we need someone who can do God's will for us. We need Jesus who fully submitted to and delighted in God's will. You see, our will is so in bondage to sin that only Christ's obedience can set us free. What does it mean to pray, your will be done? We saw three truths 
about, God, about God's will and ours. God has a will. His will is perfect. We have a will. Our will is in bondage to sin. These wills are in conflict. And only Jesus perfectly delighted in God's will for us so that by believing in Him, we can, we can have transferred to us His obedience and His doing of God's will. So here's the second point, the second step. Three truths about God, God's will and ours. Now, what does it mean to pray, your will be done? First, it means to recognize that the only freedom to the bondage of your will is through the obedience of Christ. God, Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. It means to recognize that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus was the only one who can say fully and, and finally, your will be done so that now in Christ we can pray sincerely, your will be done. It means to recognize what Christ did for us. And second, what does it mean to pray your will be done? It means to find such delight in God's will that this prayer, your will be done, would not just be a prayer on our lips, but that it would explode in our hearts and spill over into our lives so that, so that we would truly, not just with our mouths, but we would truly say, I delight to do the will of God. There's nothing I'd rather do than God's will. I don't want my own will because I know that my own will is destructive. I know my own will only leads to chaos and, and ruin, but only, only God's will is what I desire. You might say, well, I want that but I still feel afraid of God's will. Remember at the beginning I asked you, what is your attitude toward the will of God? What is your stance toward the will of God? And you might say, I still feel afraid of it. Let me just encourage you with this. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what he's saying is that he's saying this. Here's how you know that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. You don't realize it by standing on the outside of God's will and saying, I wonder if it's good for me. I wonder if that's something I should do. No, here's how you know that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. You know it by doing it. You know it by obeying it. You delight in it by obeying God. And this is, this is what uh, we, we do with, our, with, with taste. In, in uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 34, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Note the order there. It's first tasting and then seeing. You, you taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like you won't know the sweetness of honey until you put it in your mouth. You won't know the, the beauty of, of a sunrise until you open your eyes and look at it and experience it. And you won't know that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect until you step out in faith and do God's will. Let me assure you 
that you can find dozens of people in this room, people that have walked with the Lord for many years, and ask them, what's been God's will been like for you? And they can say, God's will has been good. It has been good to do God's will. I hope that God's will would, instead of bringing to our minds and hearts a sense of fear and despair or, or even hatred, that we would learn because of what Jesus has done for us to delight, delight in God's will, so that we can pray with greater joy and delight and longing, our Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, consider briefly with me. God's will is not mysterious. It is simply what He wants you to do. It's simply what He's revealed Himself to be in His Word. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love and submit to your husbands. Employees, obey your employers. Everyone, love God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the will of God. We were made for doing the will of God, and there is nothing that should bring us greater delight than doing the will of God. Our Father, I pray that as we as a people begin to learn and understand more and more the delight of obeying you, that this prayer would spring from our heart, spill over into our lives. May your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.